Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So I put on evidence uh, that if you had $100, right, that 1% would be $1. So Flextronics, if they have $4.5 billion, if you want to go ahead and uh, hit them for 1%, it has to be at least $45 million. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I am doing, uh, I've got my uh, my voice is a little shot, uh, but I'm doing much better today than I was earlier this week. Well, good, good. Hopefully your voice will hold up for at least the next hour so we can have a great show. Exactly, exactly. I've, I've been saving it up. I've been resting, just resting my vocal cords, just only signing for things around the house, just yeah, in exactly. preparation for this. Drinking warm water with lemon, I assume, stuff like that. Steam, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Well, very good. Well, uh, I, I don't want to hold us up. I want to introduce our uh, our listeners to uh, our guests uh, today. We have a fantastic trial lawyer from Santa Ana, California. Uh, we have Dan Callahan, who is a uh, the founding partner of Callahan and Blaine. Uh, and you can look him up at callahan-law.com, callahanlaw.com. That's C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N-law.com. Dan, how are you doing today? Today. I'm doing great, Steve. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you on here in this case that we're going to talk about. It's really got some uh, interesting points to it, and we'll talk about that uh, um, in a little bit. But I want to tell everybody a little bit about Dan. Uh, Dan is a graduate of uh, Western Illinois University and then went and got his law degree from the University of California at Davis uh, and uh, started his law firm, uh, Callahan and Blaine. Uh, Dan has been involved in uh, just some it, it, huge, uh, uh, both trial results and settlements, uh, and um, has gotten a number of uh, different uh, recoveries in a, a really wide range of um, uh, of cases. All you know, from business litigation to uh, employment law to um, personal injury, and just has been involved in a ton of uh, ton of different types of litigation and tried a, a lot of different types of cases. Uh, Dan is. Said, as nobody's going to be surprised, has been named as a super lawyer for many, many years. Uh, one of the top 100 lawyers of Southern California for the last 11 years, top 10 lawyers of South Carolina, of South, I almost said South Carolina, uh, <laughs> Southern California. <laughs> um, he's been uh, named as business uh, trial lawyer of the year, uh, been named as one of the top 10 lawyers in the United States by the National Law Journal, has won the Orange County Trial Lawyer of the Year Award in 2000, 2004, and 2012, and uh, and and just uh, we're so uh, so pleased to have you on the show, Dan, and and looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. Um, I uh, want to talk about this case. This is a really fascinating case, and I'm going to give the uh, give our audience a, a rundown of it. But this is a business litigation case uh, and essentially uh, comes out of a breach of contract, uh, but then goes on to sort of so much more than just a your standard breach of contract case. Uh, but the name of the case is Beckman Coulter Inc. versus Dovatron International and Flextronics International LTD. There's a number of other defendants, but I think those are the two uh, main ones that we, we saw in here. And this was tried back in 2003 uh, in Orange County. 
County, uh, uh, California. And uh, essentially what this involved is that uh, Beckman Coulter is a uh, manufacturer of um, products, machines that do a lot of diagnostic and testing in the medical field. Um, so for instance, uh, diabetes or getting blood results, things like that. Uh, and they were coming out with essentially two new products that I saw. And I, I have one is written, uh, now I wrote them all down and now I'm, okay. It's the LX20 is one of right. them. Uh, the Synchron LX20, there we go. Uh, and then the uh, Image Immunochemistry System uh, were two of the products that they were coming out with. And these products that when they get sold, my understanding is that they sell for about $300,000 a piece. Uh, and uh, obviously, since these are used in the medical field, there's a lot of testing that has to go uh, uh, become involved. The FDA is involved. They have to sort of approve, you know, everything that's used in these machines. Uh, and so there's a lot of planning up front for when you're putting these machines together. Uh, and so part of that, what they needed were circuit boards or printed circuit boards that they could use in these machines. And uh, I'll try and shortcut exactly uh the process, but basically they wanted to uh, contract with a company that could pr provide these printed circuit boards. Uh, they contracted with a company called Dovatron International, um, and they wanted someone that was uh, essentially close enough to them so that they, they could uh, get these circuit boards quickly. Also, somebody that was sort of like a mid-sized company so that they would be viewed as an, a, an important customer, as all customers should be, but, but especially them since they were um, uh, purchasing so many uh, circuit boards. Uh, and then, uh, so that happened. Uh, it sounded like everything went on. This is back in the 1990s. It sounded like everything went, went okay for about a year. Uh, and then uh, as time went on, a number of things started to happen, one of which is that some of the officers over at Dovatron uh, claimed that they needed to have a surcharge added, and it was essentially a $300,000 surcharge. There was an agreement that they were going to essentially charge $40 uh, per machine or a little bit more than $40 per machine uh, to um, capture this $300,000. Dovatron was supposed to keep track of this. And then when the surcharge was paid, uh, basically supposed to stop charging the surcharge. As you might guess, since this involved in litigation, they didn't tell anybody that they once the $300,000 was paid, they told them that they still owed more money. And, uh, and through that process, it ended up taking uh, several hundred thousand dollars more. Um, on top of that, uh, there then came where Dovatron was bought out by a company called Flextronics International in 2000. Flextronics uh, is, is a larger manufacturer, and essentially it sounds like Flextronics had a or had the opportunity or a contract with Motorola to, pro to provide circuit boards for them. And so then they just decided that they wanted to drop the Beckman Coulter contract and just uh, stop providing them. And so basically just repudiated the contract and, and canceled it. So then that leaves Beckman Coulter in the position of where they've got to get these machines out to their customers and have nobody uh, providing them with printed circuit boards. Uh, they looked at a number of options, including manufacturing their own. Uh, they eventually decided to just manufacture their own circuit boards. 
it, but be, because of that, there was a number of sort of essential component parts that was held by Dovatron and Flextronics, which they refused to provide to Beckman Coulter. Uh, and that, um, and, and so it caused them uh, a, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort in, in sort of catching up in order to um in in order to get their product out there and they ended up having to to pay a, a lot more money uh in order to get their product uh out there so that uh resulted in litigation that's when Dan was brought aboard and he and he represented Beckman Coulter uh Inc and um I, one thing that we'll talk about is that there are actually four separate verdict forms in this trial uh one was for breach of contract one was for fraud or deceit uh, one was for economic or two were for economic duress for two different uh, issues. Um, and then essentially, and so there's a number of verdicts that that come out of this case. And this was a three month long trial uh, done by Dan and his team and and just fantastic work. And the overall verdict uh, was the compensatory verdict um, was just shy of three million dollars, um, a little bit under three million dollars. But the punitive damages verdict was about nine hundred and thirty one million dollars so, uh, on top of that. And so the entire verdict was I think the exact verdict was nine hundred and thirty four million four hundred and nineteen thousand one hundred and eight dollars. Um, so just a uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous work. And um, Dan, let me first of all ask you, I, I know that was a very quick recitation of the basic facts uh did i that was pretty complete okay all right <laughs> um it uh it, you know reading it and it's funny because i i was looking through your opening and you, and you say right at the beginning that it's a sim it's a simple case and it is simple from you know they didn't give them what they promised to but then it sort of devolves into this just like uh, you know the this years long of deceit and just not wanting to follow through on their contract that really damaged your client but um but let's talk a little bit about how 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 the damages in this case worked because we we've you and I have talked about this uh before we got on but talk a little bit about how you know we go from these various forms of breach of contract and fraud uh and economic duress and then uh you know get to the point of a 934 million dollar verdict well to understand how you get to 934 you have to understand some of the bad acts Right. Uh, that And I refer to, I know Dovatron, we initially contracted with, and Flextronics bought Dovatron. And for simplicity, I'll just refer to everybody as Flextronics. And if I may just start out, uh, we went to trial. It was two and a half months, nearly three. And I made a deal with opposing counsel that I would allow him to introduce certain evidence in his opening. If he'd allow me to show a video uh, Beckman culture video that they can show all their customers just shows what a good company Beckman culture is. So now the jury was able to see that right off the bat of how good Beckman culture is. And their, their motto for quality is just simple, do the right thing. And that's what Beckman culture did. So the jury now already knows uh, that Beckman culture is pretty solid. I also went through the opening statement and pointed out a lot of damaging admissions through the depositions. But let's go back to, again, what this case is about. 
There were four causes of action. The first one was breach of contract. The damages for that were a little over $2.1 million. And the breach of contract was when they breached, we had to quickly react and manufacture these circuit boards ourselves in our portable facility. And our cost to cover was $2.1 million, right? But again, what we was going on here, Beckman Culture makes this LX20 blood analyzer and they need these complicated circuit boards for each blood analyzer. Uh, and if we don't have the circuit boards, we don't have replacement circuit boards that we can send to hospitals, clinics, other in universities, whoever's using these blood analyzers. So what happened was we had a contract, it was a five-year deal, a fixed price for the circuit boards, and two and a half years into it, Flextronics says, hey, I have a $30 billion deal uh, with Motorola to make circuit boards for cell phones, and it's gonna take up all of our capacity, so we're just not gonna make yours anymore. And we'll give you 90 days notice, and that's it. Well, the problem there, is in order for us to find a manufacturer of these circuit boards, it took us a full year. And then it took us another 10 months to get the FDA to validate the production of these circuit boards at then Dovatron. So with them giving us 90 days notice, we had nowhere to turn. We could, we're going to automatically lose a great deal of money and hospitals and clinics are going to be put at risk by not having replacement circuit boards. So at this point in time, uh, we had to look to see how we can make things go. But I forgot to tell you one thing, and that was before they decided not to make the circuit boards, they had a charge of about $300,000 that they wanted, so extra cost they had. And we had a fixed price, but they said, you either pay us at $300,000 or we're not gonna make your circuit boards, period. And then we'd be out of luck. So we agreed, and we agreed that there'd be a surcharge per circuit board of what you correctly said, uh, $40.28. And Donna Catone uh, for Flextronics was supposed to keep track of that. Well, she did keep track of it. And then she went to her boss, Steve Howard, and said, hey, they've reached their 300000 And Steve Howard said, well, do they know it? Well, no. Well, don't tell them. Just keep on charging. And they kept on charging to the tune of $655,000. And Donna Catone was on the stand and she was asked about this. And she said, I'm a single mother. And I lied at the instruction of my boss. And I was going to take this secret to the grave until I came here to testify under oath. And she breaks into tears. The courtroom has to take a bit of a break to allow her to compose herself. But that was some very powerful stuff. Yeah, Steve, really. Howard, Steve Howard gets up. Oh, no, 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 no. That didn't happen. Uh, there's actually this other invoice that we're using. You had to pay us for this other invoice. So I asked him on the stand. I said, Mr. Howard, do you have ESP? He said, well, he's, why would I ask that? He's questions. And so because the invoice you're talking about is dated four months after you imposed this $300,000 sanction upon us, right? And the jury went crazy at that. Uh, the uh, proceeding along, we had 90 days. Uh, we had to do our best to figure out what we're going to do. And we knew then we decided we're going to have to go back to Porterville because Porterville is where we initially made the first circuit boards. Uh, 
But since that's not Beckman Coulter's core competency, uh, we weren't going to do it. We we're going to farm that out to Dovatron and Flextronics. But now, since we can't find another manufacturer, it took a year the first time and 10 months for validation. Since Porterville was already validated, Beckman Coulter had to go into the business of making circuit boards. But to make circuit boards, you need certain components. And there's some components that are called lifetime buys. That means you buy all of these you're going to need because when you're out, there are no more. Mm. Well, Flextronics had the lifetime buys. We said, we need those. And they said, well, you know, no, uh, we're going to hang on to those unless you buy everything we have in the warehouse. You buy all the uh, components for other contracts unrelated to Beckman Coulter. Uh, Beckman Coulter initially said, well, wait a minute, that's not right. They say, you have 24 hours. So Beckman Culture wired them $148,000 the next day, or otherwise they would not have gotten those components. Um, interesting uh, about that, because one second. <laughs> Mr. Zale, who works for Flextronics, was examined on this. And he said, yeah. I, I breached a contract. I know I breached a contract. I didn't care. Do you think what ha what would happen in the American public's health and safety? Ah, that didn't matter. We didn't look at that. We're going to look at what, how much money you make in the Motorola deal. You didn't even look back to see what harm you're causing to Beckman culture? No. So we get the COO on the stand, and uh, he testifies that he knew what Mr. Zale did, and he approved of what Mr. Zale did, and he would like to nurture that same manner of business in all of their Flextronics employees, right? Oh and that's God. a COO. I said, well, Mr. McNamara, did you give any thought to what would happen to the American public's health and safety if we did not have re uh, replacement circuit boards? And he looked at me and he laughed. Now, I'd already told the jury all about this, about the American public's health and safety and the risks to the American public. But he was not really schooled very well by his attorney. So when he laughed, I like took three steps back. And, yeah. Oh, my God, held my heart. I could, just couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, uh, so uh, again and again and again, they kept on doing things that set them up for punitive damages. Right. So th let me ask you this, because that that uh, it, the when the uh, Mr. Zale said that he breached the contract and didn't really care about uh, health and safety. Uh, and then the uh, and then the COO said that as well. This was all right in front of the jury or. Oh, yeah. Wow. Right in front of the jury. And oh, by the way, <laughs> they they didn't care much about the jury either. Right. Um, Mr. McNamara flies in. He testifies. Now it's the end of the day, and we're not done examining him. And he says, hey, look, I got to go. You know, I've got to fly back uh, to corporate, and I'm out of here. I had to go back. Actually, I had to go back to Singapore. Uh, and he has a certain flight. So he asked the jury, the ju he told the judge, the judge asked the jury if they can stay late to accommodate Mr. McNamara because of his schedule. Now, these jurors, we had 16 jurors. Uh, we didn't lose a one for the entire two and a half months. They were there bright and, shot, bright and early every day. And they have lives too. You know, they have spouses, they have childcare, they have different responsibilities, but they stayed just to accommodate him. And one of the last questions I asked Mr. McNamara 
Isn't it true, Mr. McNamara, you don't really have a flight leaving tonight? Your flight leaves at 10.06 tomorrow morning. You're on flight number X, whatever the flight number was, and you're seated in row 2B. Isn't that correct? And he was like, how do you know that? How, well, you know, we have investigators. <laughs> but right there, he has proven he was putting his own interest ahead of the jury. He didn't want to come back in the morning. You know, so. Wow. <laughs> so that wow. was another fun little fact for Mr. McNamara. Um, so they showed absolutely no remorse during this entire thing. They came up with many different uh, potential defenses, defenses that were bull, you know? So we kind of compared Beckman culture, uh, their philosophy of do the right thing with Flextronics. It's all about worshiping at the altar of the almighty dollar. <laughs> and that's all they cared about. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are and digital law marketing is great at it exactly and you know one of the things i think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual it doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter it feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. At that yeah. point, when they're admitting, or at least some of them are admitting, yeah, we breached a contract, but we, you know, we had this Motorola, Motorola deal and that's, that's what was important to us. I mean, at, at the time that they're admitting this in front of a, a jury or at any point along the way, are they just, is the calculus in their mind just, okay, if we get busted for breaching this contract or, you right. know, if we have to pay the, the cost of cover or whatever, that's worth it to us for what we made from this Motorola deal. I mean, is that, are they just thinking that their exposure for punitive damages was not going to be that much and that they were willing to pay what they were going to have to pay for a breach of contract? Or were they thinking that they weren't even going to have to really have consequences for breaching the contract? 
Yvonne, you're right. They were thinking, okay, it's a breach. We can breach and be responsible for damages. And the damages they understood to be $2.1 million. Okay. So that's, that's like the limit of their liability, so they thought. During the course of discovery, however, we found a $300,000 fraud that was uh, where they imposed that surcharge on us. So gotcha. we added a cause of action uh, during discovery of fraud. So now we have breach of contract and fraud. Right, so 2.1 plus 300,000. Well, then we go into trial and I elicit such damning testimony out of them that I then amended the complaint to conform to proof to add two more causes of action, each for economic duress. One cause of action was either uh, you pay this, uh, this sum on each uh, circuit board or we're just going to stop. And if we stop, then you're out of luck because uh, there's evidence that we'd have $45 million worth of damage. Um, the other economic duress cause of action we brought forth was their withholding the lifetime buys, right? And um, they said, oh, there was not a hold on lifetime buys. It was a non-release. Oh, an, a non-release. That's not a hold. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So... So we then proceeded to go against them on the, those four causes of action. And I'll, I'll jump to right now what the jury did. Uh, on the first cause, they gave us a 2.1 million. Good. And Brian McCormick and I are sitting there. It's been a long trial. We felt pretty good about this. Uh, and 2.1 million. Good. That's the number. The second cause of action uh, was for fraud. That was $300,000. Boop. That's the number. And punitive damages of about one and a half million. All right, great. But now we come to the two causes of action that really made Flextronics look terrible. They had no remorse. Oh, oh, I should tell you this. Uh, they did not want to tell us, they did not want to give us their financial information. So they just said in a stipulation to the jury, we can pay any punitive damage award. <laughs> Oh yeah, is that a beauty? I, mean, I love oh it. Well, it, it's <laughs> funny you say that because I saw in your uh, notes for the closing is that you talked about you, you had this uh, theme in here of you, this is from a different reality and they're not governed by uh, not governed by our checkbook. Is that is that where that came from? Is that yeah. they can pay anything? Yeah, right. So it was it was great. Uh, so on the on the third cause of action, they gave us a three hundred fifty five thousand plus $180 million in punitive damages, right? And we're, this, Brian and I go, this is great. And then on the fourth cause of action, this is the lifetime buy, hold, or non-release. Um, we showed that the potential damages, oh, I should go back to the third, the potential damages on the uh, making us buy or pardon me, pay that $300,000 sanction. If we hadn't paid it, we put on evidence of potential damages would have been 45 million. So the jury gave us four times that, gave us 180 million. On the last cause of action, um, we put on the potential damages um, if we didn't get the lifetime buys were $295 million. So the jury gave us two and a half times that punitives, gave us 750 million in punitives. Hmm. Now, one of the fun facts of this case was we put on what potential damages we could have suffered 
and we put on the cost of cover, but nobody ever really looked at what actual damages did we suffer beyond cost of cover, right? I mean, how much money do we lose trying to switch it to Porterville? Well, they didn't ask. I didn't tell. We didn't lose any money. <laughs> right, right. We, we made the transition and made it efficiently, and we actually produced the circuit boards at less cost. So <clears throat> that was yeah. an interesting fact that they, they really should have looked at. So I, I want to go back to a couple of things. The you, uh, you said that the, um, the issue about the surcharge and overcharging on the surcharge, that's something that you figured out during the discovery process. That is correct. Okay. Right. And and then so you admitted, and how, how did you figure that out? Was that just by getting the amount? Did you basically look at your own clients, what they had paid? And then we looked at the contract, right? what we're supposed to pay and what we did pay and what's the justification for us to pay this. Of course, our clients told us, well, um, we were supposed to pay. They were even taking responsibility, actually, for doing something that would have that gave rise to. Uh, an additional cost to Flextronics of 300000 And they were willing, even though they had a fixed price contract, they said, yeah, despite that, we're willing to pay the 300 just add $40.28 every circuit board, and that's done. And it was, sorry, I mean, where did the evidence come from that, that uh, was it from, uh, I forget her name, Donna Catone, that, yes. um, that, she, that she had told him about it, and he said, okay, they don't know, don't tell them? Yes, that came okay. directly out of the mouth of an employee of Flextronics, Donna Catone, okay. who said she's a single mother and she's afraid to lose her job. So she had to lie because her boss told her to. And she was going to take that secret to the grave. Yeah. So very, very powerful testimony. And so many different things. Uh, Zale said, yeah. Uh, I was going to withhold the lifetime bias, but I did not really withhold. They're just on non-release. Um, <laughs> and then, but I, I thought it was the right thing to do. So he was proud of doing that. And the COO said, we'd like to nurture that same responsibility in all of our employees. That was just really, I mean, <laughs> you mean that? Wild. Really? I mean, when this, so Steve and I have both worked on some business cases. And, and one of the things that I, find challenging about them in the beginning is that you have somebody who comes to you and they sort of, they have their side of the story and they have, you know, a lot of their documents that, that they can show you, but you're kind of counting on them to, especially, and, and I'm talking case intake, I'm talking early days to right. kind of give you the landscape of what's going on. And you're, you're, you're very, you know, you're only getting their side, you know, things you can be complicated. You're not sure. Have they found all the paperwork? You know, is some different version of the contract going to pop up later. Little things like that, speaking from, from personal experience that I, I think can make business cases really stressful and really hard to get your arms around. <laughs> I'm curious with this case, how much of it looked like what it ended up being in the early days versus how much you know, was kind of continuing to come up and discovery and develop. I know, I know the surcharge was one of the things you discovered um, right. as the case went on. But, you know, did you, was it one of those things that you kept kind of learning, like, wow, I, this is even, you know, worse? Than, it, than my much worse. Thought? Initially, yeah. it was a $2 million breach of contract case. Right. You know, we treated it as such. But during the course of discovery and depositions, we found out about this imposition of the 300000 and the overcharge of six fifty five. 
It just got cases getting better and better. Then right. we found out the lifetime buy hold right. and the significance of holding back those components and the impact it was going to have upon our client. I got to tell you, our client, Beck and Coulter, is so stand up. They are a really good company. And when their policy is just do the right thing, you know, and that's what they did. The evidence just came out. These guys were altar boys right. in everything they did. Um, there's one other fun fact I can dis uh, discuss with you. I did, although we didn't have their financials, we do have a way to ballpark them by, because it's a public company. And we came up with a number of at least $4.5 billion in net worth, right? So then I put on an example of different statutes and what the penalties are for, by example, driving in a carpool lane. So you got to figure that the state determines the appropriate punishment for driving in a carpool lane based upon the average net worth of a person in California, right? So it's, it'll sting, but it won't crush. But now you compare the average net worth of a California driver with a $4.5 billion net worth, you know, you have to really adjust this so that the penalty suits the crime. And now if you think driving in a carpool lane is like a level one violation, okay, but there could be other violations, a two or three or 10, I got to ask yourself, what would you say the level of violation is when they were going to withhold all the life lifetime buys unless we bought everything in their factory? or when they lie to us and they know they're lying to us and they make us overpay. So I put on evidence uh, that if you had $100, right, that 1% would be $1. So Flextronics, if they have $4.5 billion, if you want to go ahead and uh, hit them for 1%, it has to be at least $45 million. And again, another example, um, if... Uh, you had 10 cents, right? If you, if somebody has a hundred dollars and you penalize them 10 cents, right? So they still have $99 and 90 cents. Now that's not very severe. That's not going to deter any conduct, but that'd be equivalent for Flextronics. That 10% is like $4.5 million. So we know $4.5 million is not going to deter, deter anybody. We also know that under the law, they don't even have to tell their shareholders uh, of this award unless it's at least uh, between one and 5% to be, to be deemed material. So that means that for them to even notify their shareholders of their bad conduct, the award had to be at least between 45 million and 225 million. So now I'm trying to explain to them, I, I empty all my pockets except for three quarters, two dimes and a nickel. And I reach in, I put that down, I pick up the dime. This dime is worth $44.5 million to Flextronics. And if you, if, again, to the $100 example, if you penalize somebody who does this kind of conduct, they have $100, would you think it'd be appropriate to penalize them 10 cents and leave them with $9.90? So they're starting to realize, oh, and keep in mind, Flextronics says it can pay any. Punitive right. damage award. Right. I may have I may have repeated that a few times. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I like that though. I especially like the emphasis on what they'll have to tell their shareholders about because that's 
you know, you have to think if the juror, I mean, I read one of the news articles of uh, that was quoting one of the jurors after the verdict who, who just said, you know, the vibe in the room was generally mostly disgust, you know, yeah. so but so if you've got those kind of emotions, you know, then that's that kind of accountability makes sense to people. Right. We can all relate to like, you know, like the worst part about if you got trouble at school or whatever was like having to tell your parents, you know, or like other oh, people yeah. finding out, you know, like right. if you can if you could pay the you know, the 10 cents or the hundred dollars or whatever, and nobody finds out about it, that's better. The embarrassing part is, you know, or the part that can really sting sometimes is when you have to report it. So I really, that's a great idea to emphasize that to them, that you have to get in, above this threshold for, for them yeah, to have to and, report it. And why should a corporation be treated more favorably than an individual? If an individual commits a level one violation and is going to get hit with a certain amount of fine, shouldn't a corporation be hit with a similar fine that makes the same kind of impact because <laughs> the purpose of punitive damages are to punish and to deter that same conduct in the future. And 10 cents or 4.5 million is not going to do it. Right. So I, I, I felt that to be very, very persuasive. Uh, we did, I did talk to the jury uh, during voir dire and I told them, or I asked them if they would be willing to award punitive damages if the facts and the law supported it. I got a commitment from every one of them that yes, they would. Back in the jury room, one of the jurors said, oh no, I can't do, I can't, I can't do punitive damages. And all the other jurors got on that one juror said, wait a minute, you told and you promised Mr. Callahan that you would. So she eventually came aboard. Uh, we didn't need her actually, because all you need is nine out of 12. Right. And uh, but still, it was a unanimous verdict for the nine hundred and thirty four million dollars. And I did have to say, you know, day, a couple of days later, oh, come on, nine thirty four. Couldn't you just made it a billion? Yeah. Well, I thought part of it, it's interesting. You told me uh, before we started the podcast what your initial ask was to the jury. And um if I remember right, it was somewhere in the range of two or three hundred million, and they went quite a bit above what you asked for. Is that right? My initial ask was a hundred and a quarter, one hundred twenty-five million, okay. and I was because I thought, "Come on, Dan, what are we doing here?" You know, <laughs> uh, and I, I thought that was high. Uh, the jury apparently discarded that, and <laughs> came up with a better number. Right. So here's here's another fun little fact: uh, the verdict came out. Uh, I think it was like a Tuesday at about 2.30, we're called up, and the verdict would have been read, you know, probably around 3, 3.30. It would have hit the newspapers that day, right? Because it would be a big verdict. However, I didn't want the verdict to be read. I said, look, we had 16 jurors. Nobody knew they were an alternate until the last day when you picked the names out of the hat and they were visibly disappointed because they've been there for two and a half months and now they're an alternate. So why don't we just not read the verdict until the morning and have the clerk call these jurors and ask them if they'd like to come on back in for the reading of the verdict. Three of the four did come back in. I told the judge also, this will give us an opportunity uh, to discuss settlement maybe one more time. 
And keep in mind, settlement along the way here, at first we would have, early on, the client was willing to accept $300,000. And then later on, uh, when I took over the case, uh, the demand went to a million. And then they offered 500000 And then as we're about to start the trial, I demanded $5 million and they offered two. And then as we proceeded, I demanded eight, and they offered five. So they're just trailing me, right? And at the end, um, I'm almost embarrassed by being willing to sell it for so less, so little. Right, right. But I said, well, do a high-low, a high of 16 and a low of eight, right? He said, no, that's, that's terrible. So he turned that down. Mm. So the next morning, what I did, by the way, that night, didn't really talk about settlement. I just did not want that article coming out with some, somebody reporting it and throwing it up against the wall, an incomplete story, but it's yesterday's news now. So it's not going to be repeated again. So I sent out a press release uh, to every news agency I can think of. And the courtroom was packed. It was just totally packed. Nice. So now, and by the way, I'm, I'm a little bit confident. So I'm over there with the jury posing for pictures with the jury before the reading of the verdict. Oh my I, gosh. I also, I brought an invitation to come to a party at my house, all nice, <laughs> nicely done. Right. And all the envelopes for all the jurors. And, uh, and by the way, if they didn't go my way, I was not going to give them the invitation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, but the invitation was, come to a party at my house. We'll send a limo to pick up you and your family members, and we'll be able to meet with the parties and the witnesses and just rehash this for one last time. And, uh, well, the verdict came my way. So they all got an invitation, and I sent limos out. I think every one of the jurors came. Well, I'm pretty certain every one of the jurors came. Wow. Uh, we had established a relationship during that yeah. trial. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it was, it was yeah. great. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now 
than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah, and I mean, LTS, I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. It's funny because yeah. I feel like when you do get to talk to a jury, and I have never tried a case that long, but it's funny because some some have so many questions for you, they've been dying to ask. And then oh, yeah. some some are like, I did my job. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So that's, yeah. that's great that they all wanted to go. I know, I, I know you were going to say something, Steve. I'm sorry if I, I was just wondering, I mean, you, you talked about like what a great culture Beckman uh, Coulter had and, and that they're, you know, just do the right thing. I was just wondering, you know, it, you know, how did it come across uh, like as far as the witnesses you put up to prove your case and sort of, in a, and tell the history of Beckman Coulter and then comparing those to the witnesses that came up for the defense it was just golden you know we have prepared our witnesses so they know what's going to happen we we go through the direct in advance with them a couple of times we tell them what the cross is going to be and etc but really these people were doing the right thing right yeah and they really didn't have any negative things to get hit with and it was just a godsend that Flextronics lied at every opportunity. Right. And would say, oh, no, that, that $300,000, that, that, was, that was because of this shipment. And I've, I go back to the office. I find the damn thing he's talking about. It was four months after the imposition <laughs> of the sanction. Right. That's why I asked him if he had ESP. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dan, how fun. do you, how, in general, how do you approach or or what advice would you have to somebody that's approaching a trial that's that long you know and i i know there are longer ones but you know for me i think my longest is two weeks yeah um and after that i was exhausted and was ready to sleep for like a month so when you are approaching a trial that's that long you know how do you pace yourself how do you prepare your clients for it what what advice would you have for other folks who haven't tried a case that long well it's with any trial uh, what you need to do, see, I, when I start my preparation for a trial, 
I do it somewhat out of fear. I thought, oh my God, circuit boards? I don't know anything about circuit right. boards. Right. You know, so now I've got to learn all this manufacturing process of a circuit board. Uh, so I, I do, I read everything. So the attorneys who worked up the file for me gave me the depositions and the exhibits and suggested I read this one and this one, and that one first. So I read the depots. I dictate my summary as I'm going through. And I also dictate uh, little thoughts I have going along. So trial thoughts. So later on, I can come back so I don't forget an idea. Right. So I'll read all the depositions. I'll read all the exhibits and then I'll match the exhibits. I do the opening. Pardon me. I do the examinations where I'm linking all the exhibits uh, to the individual witness. I'll also look at the opposing counsel's depositions. And we usually ask the same person the same question, maybe in a different way, three or four times during the deposition. So I go I look at all of them and I see which one is the best answer that I can use. So when I do the cross-examination, um, it's referenced to their depot, it's referenced to an exhibit, everything is completely prepared. And then I'll do the opening statement, uh, and then I will go ahead and practice the opening statement, uh, usually about three times during a couple days before the trial. By the time the trial comes, I no longer have fear. I feel like the 800 pound gorilla because I've just got this down. And yeah. when you have it down like that, you just emit confidence to the jury in the court and everybody can just sense it, you know? And uh, so for somebody, they should do that for any trial, a two and a half month trial. You should do it. You get all your witnesses done in advance. And the reason you want to do that is because somebody may say something and you want to do some follow-up back at the office so you can follow up on that point. You don't want to be going back and say, well, uh, our two witnesses tomorrow are A and B, so I got to read their depositions, prepare their exams. You know, you want to be way ahead of the game. Let me just take a diversion here. Yeah. I had a case where I represented uh, Rico Electronics. They were being sued for discrimination based on national origin. And... Uh, I was able to point out that, oh, no, I'm take, take it back. The plaintiff said uh, he felt he had emotional distress. He felt like he was in a white room with no doors or windows. And I'm hearing this. And going, that is a Twilight Zone episode. So I sent my guy to get all the jackets for all the Twilight Zones. And there it is, right on the damn jacket. He felt like he was in a white room with no doors or windows. Now, if I had to go ahead and prepare for the next guy's depot, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I came in the next day and I said, excuse me, you know, we left off talking about your emotional distress. And I'm behind the podium and I have in my hand the jacket. Uh, he doesn't see I have the jacket, but the jury sees I have something. And uh, so you said you felt like you're in a white room with no doors or windows. Is that right? And I'm reading off the jacket, white room, no doors or windows. It's, yes, that's right. Well, are you a big Twilight fan? Twilight Zone fan? It says so right here in the jacket. And the jury is, ah. Right. <laughs> the jury went crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Um, it's all about preparation. Yeah. Definitely. No, there, there's no doubt about that. I wanted to go back for a second and just, uh, Dan, have, give you a chance to talk about. So this the, this idea of potential economic damages that you used in both of the uh, emotional distress um, 
in the uh, yeah in the distress claims or the economic distress claims. Yeah. Um, the uh, talk a little bit about uh, about that form of damages, and then how do you go about uh, proving the potential economic damages? Uh, what happened? <clears throat> Let me give you this example. There's a U.S. Supreme Court case, and I don't recall what it is, the name of it right now. But on punitive damages, they said that the punitive damages should be based upon the actual damages or the potential damages that could have been caused. And the example in that case is that somebody comes into a large, into a room, fully occupied, takes a gun out, just randomly shoots it and breaks a person's glasses, causing $200 worth of damage. Would the appropriate punitive damage award be $800? Or could it be the potential damage that were suffered? So I argued that to the judge, and the judge allowed me to put on evidence of what the potential damages would have been had we not gotten the lifetime buys, or had we uh, not paid that $300,000 and were shut down immediately. And we had an expert who just went all the damages. This is what it would have been. This is how it would have went. And uh, that's the number. And so we had a number like 45 million in one instance and 245 million in another. So that evidence was there. And I went to the jury and just asked them to make the appropriate award based on the potential and also to make it large enough so it would be felt by a $4.5 billion mm -hmm. company. And the jury did the right thing. So, so that's where that potential comes from. Right. And, and you, I think you said earlier that you actually amended that cause of action during trial. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, seven weeks into the trial. Now, the cause of action for economic duress, I, <clears throat> I borrowed that cause of action from Arizona. And I presented it to the judge that <clears throat> this is re really just a subspecies of fraud. And the court looked at the issue and says, yes, economic duress is basically a subspecies of fraud and allowed me to amend. That was a game changer. Right. Because I remember driving home and going, damn it, this is extortion. That was just damn extortion. I mean, what? there's got to be a cause of action for extortion, you know? And then my office came up with the economic duress theory, which worked out pretty well. Did, yeah. So did, did you get the sense that when you made this motion to amend that the defense understood the ramifications of it? You know, because they weren't offering me enough money, then I don't think they really grasped the potential. Right. But, you know, some of the things we can put, we can pay any punitive damage award. <laughs> right. Really? Really? <laughs> Let's just poke in the jury in the eye and say, what are you going to do about it? Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and then so just from a just from a logistics standpoint, did you you already had an economist or, or an accountant or somebody like that on the case? And did you just did that person just serve to to do the uh, damages for the uh, uh, potential economic damages? Yes, I had an actual witness uh, from Beckman Coulter who testified as to what it what the losses would have been. Okay, and we did have an accountant who testified uh, as to what to adopted that testimony and went from there. The, the accountant didn't offer any number for punitive damages. I'm the only one that offered that, and I that lowly 125 million. So right. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And, and then I, I don't think we, we did. You did talk to the jury afterwards. Did they tell you how they came up with the number they came up with? Yes, they told me that they looked at what the potential damages were, and then they did a four to one uh, multiplier, and they looked at the other one, and they did a two and a half multiplier. Uh, and they also said they had to make it large enough to make a difference. They had to make it large enough so they these officers in this company would be held responsible to their shareholders. And if their shareholders are not even going to find out about it, how are you going to possibly deter this conduct in the future? And Mr. Callahan, when you took that dime out of your pocket, you know, and you pointed out if you have $100 and you, you penalize him, but he still has $99.90. What kind of impact is that going to be? You know, that apparently was very powerful. Now, that idea, it came to me while I was driving to court. So I made sure I got, got a hold of Brian. Brian, I need three dimes, probably three quarters, mm -hmm. two dimes and a nickel. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was fun. And so we were high-fiving after that one for a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's I'm a lot sure. of work in a two and a half month trial. And also there's a lot of work leading up to it, but all that goes away. You know, you just forget <laughs> all of that. And you just, just remember the high five and, and excitement. And I'm, ex I'm excited right now. Remembering it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, well, do you, can you talk at all about, I mean, I, this, so this case happened almost 20 years ago and I see yeah. it's been resolved since then. What do you want to talk or can you talk a little bit about, um, what happened uh, in the aftermath? Oh, yes, I can tell you something. <laughs> uh, I remember the jury verdict was read in the morning, right around 930 in the morning. And the courtroom is packed with reporters. And both Beckman Coulter and Flextronics are publicly traded companies, right? And so within 15 minutes, uh, trading on their stocks was frozen. You, nobody can trade anymore. And then the next day, by coincidence, Flextronics was scheduled to ring the bell to open the market. Oh talk my goodness. All about, I know. How about that? <laughs> talk all about themselves and how great they are. And the only question people want to know is what the hell happened in California? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was fun. Oh man. Well, and I just have to have to wonder what your uh, team was thinking when, you know, this case initially comes in and you're thinking it's probably a $2 million case and then you end up with a $934 million verdict. I mean, that's yeah. quite, quite a change. People are surprised. So <laughs> and one of the good things about this case is that a lot of my attorneys would come in periodically to watch what was going on. And I also had my, my son and my daughter, uh, they came and watched the opening statement and they watched the closing argument, right? And I remember uh, calling my son after the verdict and he was uh, driving in a car with his mother and uh, <clears throat> I said, hey, the verdict came in. Did you win? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 we won. Uh, we won $934 million. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it was really exciting to be able to have my children there to see what their dad actually does for a living. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, yeah. so one of the one of the articles I read was I it must have been, you know, maybe a, a day after a verdict, a couple of days after the verdict. And um, a representative for Flextronics had said that they were 
in talks to settle the case. And I think you had said, well, that like they're not where they need to be. You know, did they, did they ever get where they needed to be? We did eventually enter into a confidential settlement. I can't share the number with you, but right. it's higher than any demand I had made previous to or at the end of tr- at the trial. Right. Yeah. So right. it was gotcha. significant. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, when you've got a $934 million verdict, yeah. Yeah. Wow. A unanimous verdict, I like to point out. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, well, uh, well, Dan, listen, this has been really great to talk about and, and just fantastic work. I want to make sure, is there anything that you want to make sure that our listeners know about the uh, the Beckman Coulter versus Flextronic, uh, Flextronics trial uh, that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I think we touched on all the major bases, but there is one thing I'd like to share with you. Yeah. Um, so I was the managing partner for Callahan and Blaine, but right now I'm performing consulting services under the name Callahan Consulting, and it's CallahanConsulting.com. Okay. And what we do is two things. Uh, one, I work just as I uh, mentored the junior partners and the associates in our firm. I'm available to mentor attorneys on trial practice and trial skills and techniques and whatnot. And I do that on an hourly basis. And if it's just one hour, so my normal rate, if you want to do five or more hours, I reduce it significantly. Uh, and also, uh, I help clients find uh, an attorney in their community, in their specialty. So what I'll do with that is, I'll, like, by example, I had somebody needed a bankruptcy uh, lawyer in Detroit. So I, I know a lot of good lawyers. I don't know everybody, obviously, but I can do the research through the various avenues. And then I'll find out who I think are two or three most qualified. I'll call them up and I'll see if they have the manpower to take out another case right now. Uh, if it's the guy I'm talking to, is he the one who's going to do the work or is it going to be passed down the line to somebody else? Uh, and then once I have narrowed that down, to at least two, sometimes three uh, law firms, I speak with a client, I tell what my thoughts are, and we get on a conference call with the lawyer and let the client and the lawyer um, have an interview. And then after that, the client makes a decision. So in that situation, I'm paid a referral fee from the law firm. It doesn't cost the client anymore, and the client, some clients, when they want to pick out a lawyer, oh, my neighbor's a lawyer, my cousin, Billy's a lawyer, you know, and it's not the best way to find the best lawyer for a particular situation in your community. Right. right. So I try to help clients do that. And I do that through Callahan Consulting, uh, CallahanConsulting.com. And my email is Dan at CallahanConsulting.com. Very good. Very good. Well, Dan, Dan, we listened. We uh, we really appreciate it. Um, I want to remind everybody we're talking about uh, the Beckman Coulter versus Flextronics case that was tried back in 2003 and resulted in a $934 million verdict in Orange County, Florida. And we've been oh, talking California. Actually. Did I say, oh man, I knew I was going to do that. Well, there is. <laughs> I know, I know. That's why, that's why it gets stuck in my head. California. If I said, if I said Florida, that's just my mistake. Uh, California. And, uh, and, and we've been talking with Dan Callahan, uh, the founding partner of Callahan and Blaine. Uh, you can look Dan up at either uh, Callahan-law.com or at CallahanConsulting.com. So Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Yvonne, it's been a pleasure chatting with you both. 
thank you for spending the time with me and allowing me to relive that very fun experience of that Beckman culture trial. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> thank you for work. sharing it with us. <laughs>